this book is so rooted in Japanese culture and legend and lore. The basic plot is uh, Juntaro Yamanochi, who is the real-life lead of the band, the Garo Gary Gegege. He disappeared roughly around like 2001, 2002 for about a, uh, pretty close to a decade. And I've been a fan of his music for a while. And the fact that he did just drop off like he did kind of fascinated me. So I wanted to imagine what his time during that disappearance would be. Getting into those things about noise, in the U.S., in the 90s, really, people started using it as a generic term. Coming from things like Sonic Youth, you know, where you would hear or industrial, you know, music that is often very rhythmic and has a, a lot of rhythmic repetition, but the melodic or harmonic stuff is taken away or has a punk rock sort of chanting style instead of singing. So there are all these ways in which there are musical and material reasons for calling something noise. Warning, this episode includes loud, distorted, compressed music with unrhythmic and harsh tones that defy basic rules of composition. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is lit! Hey, Lit listeners, welcome to another episode of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jimmy Kimmel, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. For more info on the podcast, me, or Searching for Jimmy Page, check out my website, christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you've got an idea for a future episode, maybe a favorite rock novel you want to see featured on the show, or you just want to connect, find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. And you can email me at Christy Alexander Hallberg at gmail.com. I love hearing from all you lit listeners out there. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Let's spread the word. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Hello, lit listeners. Get ready for a bizarro episode. Ben Arzate is in the cyber house to talk about his short novel, Music is Over, published by Malarkey Books in 2022. Malarkey describes Music is Over as a picaresque, surreal horror novel that imagines the lost years of musician Juntaro Yamanuchi. It is weird, bizarre, violent, and surprisingly sweet. If you're into the style of music commonly known as Japanese noise, trains that lead to nowhere, industrial wastelands, cities filled with strange doctors, mysterious foreigners, psychotic policemen, and unfriendly residents, this is the book and episode for you. If you don't know much about this kind of music, not to worry. In the last segment of the episode, David Novak, author of the award-winning book Japanoise, Music at the Edge of Circulation, drops by to talk about it with me. But first, 
I'd like to welcome Ben Arzate to the podcast. Ben lives in Des Moines, Iowa. He is the author of the novels The Story of Why, Elaine, and of course, Music is Over. He's also written the poetry collections The Sky is Black and Blue Like a Battered Child and Dr. Sodom and Mrs. Gamora. His first book of plays called Plays, Hauntologies, was released through Madness Heart Press. Find him online at dripdropdripdropdripdrop.blogspot.com. Thanks for joining the show, Ben. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Well, now that I've read Music is Over and as a result gotten at least a little acquainted with Japanese noise music and a few underground bands of that nature, I'm fully prepared to have my mind blown by your responses to the prompts in five questions. But I also know that you like some more mainstream artists, if only comparatively speaking, like Tom Waits, Nick Cave, Frank Zappa, and Nick Drake, who I also love. So this should be an interesting set of five questions. You ready to do this? Yes. What music video made the biggest impression on you? Honestly, the one that probably made that's made the biggest impression that I've watched is probably the one for Da 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 by Trio. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I think so. Um, it's a very surreal music video, and honestly, I actually have trouble finding the full uncut version online now because there is a scene in it where one of the band members throws a knife at somebody's back and it gets lodged in. And then it cuts to that person on a TV with blood coming out of their mouth. Okay, no, I have not seen this. <laughs> I was thinking of something else. <laughs> when did this come out? Uh, it was sometime in the 80s. Trio was a um, a sort of one-hit wonder band from Germany. Their only hit was probably Da Da Da, which was a very simplistic kind of sarcastic love song. Okay. And the music video, it takes place in a bar that looks like a typical like German bar. Uh, it has members of the bands doing things like, like I said, throwing knives at people's backs. Um, it has them like randomly appearing on the TV in the bar. Uh, it has like a a very traditional looking German band playing the song up until the end. And it has things like um, the lead singer would play this like tiny uh, handheld keyboard, and he would like occasionally like pull it out as if he was like showing off a gun or something. Okay. It's just like a very surreal, weird music video that has like all sorts of things going on. And, and just like it seems very subtle and low key, but it's almost like a David Lynch movie. Like okay. It's like the more you watch it, the more things off with it you find. And I, I really think it's a really great video. If you can find like that full uncut version, I recommend it. Update. I did an internet search for the trio video of Da 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 that been referenced and eventually found it. FYI, it's not on YouTube. All you'll find there is the sanitized version. Check the show notes for the uncut video Ben mentioned if you want to see this sufficiently creepy video. In the meantime, here's a snippet of the song Da 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 by Trio. Da 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 If you could see any band or solo artist, living or dead, in concert, who would it be? And I can't wait to hear this. Um, maybe my answer will surprise you, but honestly, Hank Williams. Really? I absolutely love Hank Williams. I do too. 
I think he would be probably the one I would want to be able to see live if I could see anybody. Well, you know, that doesn't surprise me as much as it might have, but I, I think I read someplace that you like Porter Wagner. Oh, yes, I really like Porter Wagner. He's uh, really great. Okay, well, then I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as shocked as I probably would have been, but I still am a little shocked. But yeah, I love Hank Williams, too. He was a genius. Absolutely. All right, you're in a bar, and you see a rock star sitting in a corner nursing a drink and reading your book, Music is Over. Who is it, and what do you do? I probably took this question a little bit too literally, but the one rock star I could conceivably see of actually ever reading my book was David Bowie. And obviously, if I saw him now, I'd be, one, certain it it must not be him because he's dead. (laughs) But um, if, like, you know, assuming the scenario did happen, I guess I would just go try to talk to him about books because, you know, even though I really love his music, um, it did fascinate me that he was like a, a connoisseur of like some odd and unusual books. And so I definitely want to be able to talk to him about that. I love that answer. I thought you were going to say Juntaro. So that was also a surprise. I actually did send him a PDF of the book and he did like give me a bless- his blessing to um, have it published. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that later on, because I read that you actually contacted him, and and I didn't know you sent him a PDF, but I knew you made contact, and he kind of gave you his blessing. That's interesting. I'm not sure if he's read the book or not. I'm not sure how well he speaks English, like, well enough for us to communicate, but I don't know if he's proficient enough to be able to sit down and enjoy a book about uh, written entirely in English. Well, how did you find him? Well, he's been active again for a while, so I just kind of like went through everything he had and found the email that he does for doing orders, and turns out he's the one who runs and monitors that, so I just shot an email to that. Way to dig. All right. Yeah. Fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. Hmm. When I hear a Boards of Canada song, I think of isolation, because I really got into Boards of Canada. When I was in um, college and at that time, I was leading a very isolated life, very rarely going out and mostly just hiding away wherever I could. that still on your playlist now because that's the next question what's on your playlist they kind of are especially like uh, music has the right to children that's um an excellent one and i have been listening to a lot of more ambient music lately Mm -hmm. so what i've actually been doing while i'm while i'm at work is i have like this infograph which is like a list of essential dark ambient they call it i just pull up those albums to listen to while i'm working Dark ambient music. I'll have to check that out. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Ben Arzate. Make sure you stick around for the last segment of the episode to catch David Novak school us all on Japanese noise music.
This is Van Arzate, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're back with Ben Arzate, author of the novel Music is Over. Bob Freville wrote the following in his astute review of your novel, Poverty, Power, and Pornography, in Ben Arzate's Music is Over. Quote, Music is Over is one of those stories that defies categorization. It is one-third wanderlust walkabout, one-third surreal murder mystery, one-sixth steampunk time travel fantasy, and one-sixth erotic novel, end quote. Ben, you do indeed pack in a lot in those 113 pages. Give listeners a little bit more about the basic plot of the book. So the basic plot is uh, Juntaro Yamanochi, who is the real-life um, lead, uh, lead of the band, the Garo Gary Gegege. He disappeared roughly around like 2001, 2002 for about a, uh, pretty close to a decade. And I've been a fan of his music for a while. And the fact that he did just drop off like he did kind of fascinated me. So I wanted to imagine like um, what his uh, time during that disappearance would be. It was basically written for a workshop that I was doing online. And essentially, Juntaro meets a woman who has scars on her face from being attacked by a, uh, um, an urban legend monster in Tokyo. They find that they've missed the final train and end up on a what they think is a special night train, but it ends up taking them to a place that doesn't exist anywhere within time and space. And the novel is then essentially trying to find their way back and running into various uh, figures in this uh, in this strange place. You establish the main character and the inner conflict he's experiencing immediately, which I really liked. I was immediately inside the head of this guy and kind of understood what was making him tick, what he was grappling with. So the story opens with, here's a quote, Juntaro fixed his makeup in the mirror. In the bed of the love hotel room, the chubby salary man that he'd come with had fallen asleep. He didn't mind. It wasn't a satisfying encounter, and he couldn't remember having one since Tetsura died. 
more on Tetsuo later. And in short, he was Juntaro's bandmate and lover. But Juntaro spends the whole novel in drag, passing as a woman. So from the beginning, we get the impression that he's not happy, that he's tired of his casual sex routine in love hotels. And by the way, in case anyone out there in podcast land hasn't heard of a love hotel, can you explain what that is? Well, it's pretty much exactly what it sounds. It's um, over here, we would probably call them something like a no-tell motel, but uh huh. rather than being like, you know, these like, well, there are some like this, but rather than being these sleazy establishments in Japan, they're actually uh, high-end ones, um, ones that like practically shout, we're a place that you rent for like an hour or two to have sex and nothing more. What I found interesting about them is that the concept in term came from Hotel Love, which was the first of this kind of hotel, and it opened in Osaka in 1968. So this is deeply rooted in Japan. Anyway, after that scene, soon after that scene, Juntara meets and develops a friendship with that young woman that you just mentioned, Kotano, who has that scarred face. Here's something else that I had not heard about. The slit mouth woman, urban legend in Japan. So she has those scars on her face. Tell me a little bit more about that urban legend. The idea behind it is that the she was a woman who, in her life, uh, had been murdered by her boyfriend, who had basically sliced a Glasgow smile into her face, and now her ghost walks around the cities. When you meet her, she says, "Am I pretty?" and uh, you're supposed to say yes. And when you take off, and when she takes off uh, the mask that she's wearing, she reveals uh, the scars on her face and says, "Am I still pretty?" And the idea is there's three possible answers. If you say yes, she'll use scissors to cut the same kind of smile in your face. If you say no, she'll just kill you. And they say that you're supposed to say you look average, which is supposed to confuse her enough to get away. Right from the start, we get a sense that there's something fantastical about the story because the character does, when she has those scars on her face, and she does say that to Juntaro, am I pretty? I love that whole depiction of the urban legend. This book is so rooted in Japanese culture and legend and lore. And I know you've never been to Japan. In fact, I've read that the only time you've been out of the States is when you went to a friend's wedding in Morocco. That's correct. So you, yep, you had to do a lot of research for the book. And I'm wondering, which came first, your interest in Japan, Japanese culture and music, or the band and Juntaro? It's kind of hard to say which came first. Uh, like most Westerners, anime was my gateway into Japanese culture. But outside of that, I you know, was also into very odd music when I was in high school, which is how I discovered like Japanese bands like the Garagari Gigage and the Boredoms and Mars Bow and things like that. So... I had been into that, you know, for a while now, both, you know, weird Japanese music and reading up some on things on Japanese culture. And I guess, like, I sort of did, like, organic research by reading a bunch of Japanese novels. Uh, actually, I actually haven't read a lot of Murakami, but I have read um, Ryu Murakami, who wrote Audition, probably his most famous work. Ryu Murakami. Okay. Yeah, I came across his name in doing some research for this interview. So he's a Japanese novelist, short story writer, essayist, and filmmaker. And his most famous book, which you just mentioned, is Audition. Yeah, just like a over time reading a bunch of Japanese novels, uh, 
Ryu Murakami is probably the biggest influence on it, I'd say. Okay. Well, I don't think readers can fully appreciate Music is Over without knowing something about the Gara Gara Gay Gay Gay, and more specifically, the band's founder and a number one member, Juntaro Yamanuchi. I also think, because this style of music is probably going to seem impenetrable to some listeners who've never heard it before, we need to address expectations. Now, in the last segment of the episode, David Novak is going to get into the weeds of noise music with me. But as a preface, and before I play any more clips of songs by noise bands, here's a short PSA from Oliver Kemp of the YouTube show Deep Cuts. The world of noise is a big one. If you've never listened to noise music before, you need to keep in mind that your perceptions of music will be challenged. You can't expect to listen to noise music and have the same experience that you do with other forms of music. I think in general, if you approach a noise record, you're not going to come away thinking, oh, I really like specific moments of that. Rather, it's going to feel much more like a singular experience. If you go into noise music with an open mind and know that it's not going to be like a conventional form of music and you're you're not going to get the same experience as you would with a conventional form of music, I think that's a great way to start. It could be like a scary, intense experience, but you also might find that the music feels enlightening. There's something enlightening and even in some instances calming about these these washes of white noise, uh, these fricative glitches. You you can have experiences you might never expect to have previously with a a dissonant, arrhythmic form of music. Thanks, Oliver Kemp, for that. Okay, Ben, now tell listeners a little bit about the band Garo Gary Gay 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 and its leader, Juntaro. The Garo Gary Gay 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 is a very, besides being very all over the place in their stylings. They have some some that are just a uh, normal, like a, well, quote unquote, normal punk music, some noise rock, uh, some straight up noise, ambient music. And they've also done a lot of like prank releases. Uh, one of the funnier ones is um, where they had a concert where a certain like seven inch single was the only place it was going to be sold. But instead of actually selling it, they just made a pile of the records and burned them in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> They've also done things like they released a uh, cassettes called like uh, Art is Over, like one that had a um, was basically just an octopus tentacle glued inside a cassette case. Mm-hmm. I read about yeah. that. Yep. And another that was just like a broken cassette in a box that um, you were supposed to like shake like a maraca. It was like called You Are the Music Maker or something like that. They had one that was like, it gave the appearance of being about a speech from um, Emperor Hirohito, but instead it, it just started with the national anthem of Japan, and then the rest of the record was the sound of people having sex. Okay, I'm going to play a snippet from this album. The first part of the intro to the album, like you said, starts with the Japanese national anthem which lasts about 45 seconds before the sex part cuts in. So everybody note that I can only play about 30 seconds of a song on the podcast to avoid the copyright police. So I'm going to start the clip near the end of the national anthem just to give you an idea of what this sounds like. If you want to hear the whole thing, you can find the album on YouTube. So here we go.
You have given me quite an education because I had never heard of this band before I read your book. And I've just been going down that rabbit hole and listening to what music you can find of them on YouTube and what video you can find of them on YouTube. And it's been fascinating. So the members of the band changed a lot through the years, but the two principal players here were Juntaro and Tetsuya. Tell me about Tetsuya, because he had basically one role in that band. <laughs> yeah, there um, actually isn't a lot of information about him as a person. He's missing right now, is he not? Nobody knows where he is. I just think Jotaro hasn't said where they are. If there's any information about them, uh, Jotaro hasn't said anything, which is why in the book he's passed away, because in interviews before Jotaro had disappeared, he had said that Tetsuya had to take um, time off of the band due to sickness. But when he was in the band, besides, you know, doing noise-making stuff alongside Juntaro, his primary role was to be naked on stage and masturbate. Masturbate. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, one time he even used a vacuum cleaner, as I understand. Yes. <laughs> I think I did see a video of that. It's out there. You can see it. It's not clear, but you can see it. You know, what's interesting, Juntaro did play instruments. He played several instruments. I think he could play guitar and drums and some other stuff too, maybe keyboards, but he would make use of, of other objects and use them in a musical way. Yes. So it's very much a punk sensibility. Definitely. And there was the, the fact that he did like just use like things like sounds of people having sex and, um, you know, people, I guess, taking a shit because one of the that's uh -huh. one of their records one side what it was like a, a single one side was just the sound of someone taking a shit for five minutes and the other is like the sound of people having sex for five minutes what the hell oh my god <laughs> wow <laughs> so when they started the band in 1985 juntaro was 18 years old and tetsuya I think I'm just going to start referring to him by the pseudonym he adopted, Garo 30. But Garo 30 was in his 40s. So big age gap there. Yeah, you could um, kind of, because obviously Jotaro's sexuality was very important to the band, and you could definitely tell by the art and the lyrics and such that he was definitely into older men. Okay. All right. So there are lots of nods to the band and the narrative, which is why I say... It helps if you know something about the band. I knew nothing about the band. I'd done no research when I read the book. And I liked the book. I like it more after going and doing a deep dive into the band, into noise music. But all of the, the little nods in the book become obvious after you learn about this stuff. For example, Juntara is with a salary man which in Japan is a white-collar worker, in the Love Hotel at the beginning. I read that quote earlier. And the Garo put out a recording in 2001 called Saturday Night Big Cock Salaryman. So they're just all these little things that, you know, I tip my hat to you. You you know your stuff, and it comes through in the book. I know that the narrative is influenced by Jintero's life. 
how would you say stylistically the book is influenced by the band, that whole kind of noise music, punk sensibility? It was definitely a lot of like conscious nods to it because I listened to like the Gary Gary Gay Gay a lot during it. You know, I read a lot of interviews. So in a way, I kind of viewed the writing of the story as an attempt to take my experience listening to them and put it to words. The Garo was influenced by the Ramones and Iggy and the Stooges, and Juntaro loves the Ramones album, the live album, It's Alive. And so for their live performances, Didi Ramone used to start every song with one, two, three, four, that yeah. kind of rapid fire countdown. And the Garo screams this in their work. I mean, and, and every chapter in Music Is Over starts with one, two, three, four. So, and each chapter is short with a quick pace and stripped down language. It's like this, it's like a punk album. The book is really like a punk album. The Ghetto Gary Gay Gay Gay. One, two, three, four. I want to talk about the title. The title of the book comes from the Gara Gara Gay Gay Gay. Juntaro used to say, fuck compose, fuck melody, dedicated to no one, thanks to no one, art is over. This is one of the quotes in the epigraph. It reminds me of a quote from Charles Bukowski listed as one of your favorite quotes on your Facebook page. And here's the quote, don't try. Do you see a correlation there? I think so, yeah. Though with uh, Bukowski, it was a sort of like, you know, let things come naturally kind of thing. Um, Juntaro, I think, is yeah. more confrontational about it. Like he's taking these ideas, like both, he's taking like both, both musical conventions and moral conventions and being like, shove this up your ass. Well, that sort of brings us to the next thing I wanted to ask you about your copyright statement. And I know that everybody, who's interviewed you has asked you about it, but I would be remiss in not doing so because it's so interesting, so unique. So here it is. Anti-copyright 2022. The author claims no rights, exclusive or otherwise, over this work. As a courtesy, please contact the author with any adaptations, remixes, or creative plagiarisms you intend to make of it, end quote. What's your thinking behind that? Well, you know, part of it is, you know, the fact that like the girl, Gary, gay, 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 they would do things like um, intentionally plagiarize parts of songs, like would use uh, copyrighted material without asking, uh, things like that. And I think that's important for, you know, keeping art free and flowing and for innovative and all of that. And just in general, um, I, you know, just don't believe in copyright as a concept. I don't really see how it makes any sense that someone can like own an idea. Like if I'm thinking of a song in my head right now that I've heard somewhere, like what do they just like own that part of my brain or something like that? Mm. So I, 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 anything like I publish on my own, I do, I do, I publish under anti-copyright, which essentially just puts it in the public domain or obviously when there's a publisher involved that complicates things, but Malarkey was very supportive of me going the anti-copyright route. So I just basically wanted to say, hey, uh, you can pretty much do what you have, whatever you want with this without concern for copyright. But I, if you do do something, I just want to see it because I just think that's cool. 
Well, yeah, I was going to say that doesn't that doesn't mean hey, have at it without giving credit where credit is due. I assume is what you mean. Yeah, I would prefer they do that. Like, I'm not gonna pursue anything legal if they if they don't. But I would, you know, just like to see it because I think it's cool if someone were to take I don't know, like use the pages to I don't know, like make a collage or make blackout poetry with it. Okay, yeah, because I was having trouble with that as a writer myself, thinking. I slaved over this shit. <laughs> this was years in the making. I don't want somebody just taking this and going off and turning it into something that I might not like. I might not want my work used that way. I would want to be asked for permission. So I was fascinated when I read that copyright statement and kind of trying to get to what you were saying. And I think what you just said explains a lot about why you're a fan of bands like bare renditions because that's exactly what they do you know they take covers and they're actually they're having a lot of trouble right now getting their work out because of copyright as i understand it i believe so yeah hey lit listeners if you're enjoying the episode so far stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on good pods or apple podcast i'll leave links in the show notes seriously rock is lit is a new show in a sea of podcasts Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rock is Lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. Here is the first one. Japanese noise bands. And I'm probably going to massacre the pronunciation, so forgive me. Hannah Tarash? Mersbau? Or The Boredoms? Hannah Tarash actually didn't have many recordings as far as I know. They were mostly like a live band and they... They did wild shit like driving a bulldozer right into the venue where they were performing. It was like a abandoned venue. <laughs> wow. So they were pretty nuts. And I'm pretty sure that uh, the uh, head of the Boredoms was in that before he was in there. But of those, I'm going to have to just go with the Boredoms because even though I do like uh, Marsbau, the boredoms, I think, have a wider range of music, so they do have stuff I could listen to when I'm in the mood for harsh stuff, and stuff I could listen to when I want something more mellow. Okay, now, if I had thrown the Garrow in there, would that have one? Yeah. <laughs> All right, okay. I, was, I didn't want to do that because I figured this much. I wanted to know what else you liked. Okay, music formats, cassettes, CDs, or vinyl? I'll go with, uh, with vinyl, yeah, because I know cassettes have had a resurgence, and I do have a few, but um, I have a good vinyl player that's lasted me for a while, and uh, I do like how, you know, big the the covers are so yeah i appreciate the art 
I like that because I know you were born in 1988 and vinyl was on the way out by then. Yeah. So that, I remember for a little bit, like vinyl was, it was like a punchline for how old you were if you owned <laughs> records. Okay. I'm old. I'm old. Now I was born in 1969. So it was, it was vinyl for me. And then I was around when cassettes hit their heyday. And then we switched to CDs and it took me a long time to adjust to CDs. But I still, I still would pick vinyl. There's just something about it for all the reasons that you just said. Here's a little bit of a different category. Drinks mentioned in your novel. And again, I'm probably going to mask the pronunciation. Asahi Super Dry, Sapporo, Ibisu, or, and thank God, Yoo-Hoo. <laughs> um, let's see. <laughs> the last one was Yoo-Hoo. Yeah, somebody's. I think it's Keith. Drink. Keith is drinking a YooHoo at one point. <laughs> oh yeah, his his car is littered with the because he's the American. Yeah, uh, his car is littered with YooHoo bottles, which I mean, mm-hmm. like a, a reference to Doctor Doom. The, the Doctor Doom character drinks YooHoo all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, of those, um, I'd have to go with uh, Sapporo. Like YooHoo is fine. It's it's okay, but you know, I, I prefer beer and the two. <laughs> Of the two, uh, Sapporo is um, is the better beer, in my opinion. I think that uh, the Asahi Super Dry is Japan's number one beer at this point. I think so, yeah. I've never had that. I've never had the Sapporo. I'm, I'm kind of a wino. But, uh, yeah, the idea of, of spiked Yoohoo is pretty disgusting. Mm-hmm. and But it, plain Yoohoo is is pretty disgusting, too. I don't know. Um, Yoohoo might, might go good with Kahlua. That's true. Now, yes, that's probably true. All right, locations mentioned in Music is Over. Train stations, bars with rude bartenders, love hotels. Of that, it would depend on if I have a partner for the love hotel. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I definitely wouldn't want to have a rude bartender, but just for the sake of it, like let's just say I'm by myself, no partner, um, train station, uh, because a train station would be a nice place to just sit and people watch and take things in. Last category, best rock guitarist, Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page or Jimmy Page? <laughs> Jimmy Page is good, but uh, I don't know who I'd pick as my favorite guitar player. Well, then you have to pick one of the three Jimmys okay. that I threw out. Okay. Uh, you got A, B, or C. Uh, the second Jimmy Page. <laughs> okay. All right. He's in the middle. <laughs> Okay. What have you got going on that you want to tell listeners about? See, I do have a new novel being released uh, uh, late this year from D&T Publishing. Uh, That novel is called Saturday Morning Mind Control, and it's about a young man who discovers that um, someone is hiding a signal in Saturday Morning Cartoons that causes children to commit horrific crimes. I've been working with a Another writer from Iowa who goes by the name Rob Ramirez. I've published a couple of stories for him. And right now I'm shopping a novel around for him uh, called Candy Shopping at the End of the World, where it's a pretty cool story about a uh, suburban dad who turns his RV into a war vehicle to fight a billionaire candy mogul. A lot of fun. (laughs) So um, I was originally planning on putting putting it out myself, but. I, uh, a couple places 
that I was interested in submitting came open. So with Rob's blessing, I've been submitting it there. And also speaking of the Saturday morning mind control novel, originally that was much, uh, I conceive that as being much shorter and being part of a collection of media-themed horror stories. But then I ended up expanding it to more novel length, and I'm going to try to do the media-themed horror stories separately. So I've been plugging away on various stories for that. Sounds like you've got quite a few irons in the fire, and I'm looking forward to reading your upcoming work. Ben, thanks so much for being on the show. Find Ben Arzate on Twitter at BenArz13. Check out his blog at dripdropdripdropdripdrop.blogspot.com. Pick up a copy of Music is Over at your local indie bookstore or malarkeybooks.com. And you can get the ebook off the website godless.com. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by David Novak, author of the book Japan Noise, Music at the Edge of Circulation, who will do a deep dive into the world of underground Japanese noise music. Back in a moment. This is David Novak, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm happy to welcome David Novak to the show. David is Associate Professor of Music at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Director of the Center for the Interdisciplinary Study of Music. He is the author of the award-winning Japanese Music at the Edge of Circulation, which was published in 2013, and the host of Selectric Davyland, a weekly radio program broadcast on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. His new book project, Diggers, a Media Archaeology of Global Popular Music, theorizes musical globalization among networks of record and cassette collectors, informal sound archives, reissue labels, and sound recording digitization projects in Southeast Asia and beyond. Thanks for joining me, David. Oh, sure. No problem. The focus of this episode is Ben Arzate's short novel, Music is Over, a surreal horror story that imagines the lost years of musician Juntaro Yamanuchi from the Japanese noise band, the Garo Gary Gay Gay Gay. As I understand it from several people, you are the reigning world heavyweight champion when it comes to Japanese noise music. In an email to me, journalist Ed Cunningham called your book, Japan Noise, a seminal book on Japanese noise. Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth said of the book, David Novak goes inside the noise scene and presents an astounding perspective, historically astute, inspired, and completely shell-shocked. So I'm really excited to have you here, especially since I know very little about this type of music. 
That's good. I th- I think I don't I don't accept the idea of being an expert in this music, especially being someone who just sort of dipped into it over the years, not someone who's the core of it. And there are, you know, a lot of these people wrote their own books about it. And I might be the one person who's written about it in English, you know, critically, but the gurus are all in Japan, mostly. And there are lots of people in the US who know uh, more than me too. So thanks to uh, those guys for their props. But uh, it's funny to think of the word seminal in relation to Gedeo Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we jump in, tell me a little bit about how your interest in Japanese culture and music began. Because I I know you taught English in Japan for a year in the late 80s. Mm. I dropped out of school. Yeah. In the the late 80s, anyone could do anything because they didn't have the JET program, which is the, the, the English language program yet, where they would place people in schools. And the English schools were kind of just casting about for anybody. So someone like me who didn't even have a college degree yet could just sort of show up and try to get work. And it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. But uh, and I learned a lot of hard lessons. But as a, you know, 19 or 20 year old, I was kind of thrown into this world that, you know, was full of really different things than I expected. I went to Japan with a lot of ideas about how it would be, you know, coming from textbooks, you know, religious studies. And I was living in Kyoto, this medieval city. And uh, what I found was really different, much more sophisticated, transnational, cosmopolitan, and also, you know, strange in some ways. And I I ran into a lot of stuff that was off the map, but not really noise. And I don't think I heard about it until I came back to the United States, because the U.S. was really where this concept took off and especially got applied to Japan, whereas a lot of people making in Japan were more like trying to get connected with the experimental electronic industrial music scenes of of the West. Well, you were a DJ in college. Mm -hmm. So was that how you came across the music? Pretty much. Yeah, I was working at WOBC uh, in, in Ohio, and there were a few records that would come in. You'd say, what's this? You know, it'd have no information in English, or it would be really hard. There was no internet. You couldn't find out. No one knew anything about it. We'd just say, this crazy stuff is coming from Japan. Check this out. And, you know, we mixed it with all sorts of stuff, like, you know, Eskimo records from Folkways or... Oh, wow. We would just sort of take it as a sound source and mess with it because we were making noise too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we got cassettes or CDs from Japan, we kind of dealt with it as a material sound, you know, just this is something that we can relate to because it's, it's out there and it, and it does different things with musical sound, with electronic sound. And the idea of it being something that came from Japanese culture, it didn't matter too much to us. And it wasn't until later that people started sort of really trying to, trying to assign Japan to it as Japan became more and more of a presence in the media cultures of the U.S. in the late 80s and early 90s with anime and other kinds of forces of, of media, Pokemon or whatever, mm-hmm. coming into the American consciousness. Right. But in terms of music, it really was Boredom's album, Soul Discharge, that yeah. really introduced you to that world of, of Japanese noise music that you really had, you, as you were saying, you had not even really heard of that before. Yeah, I was living in the same city as as those musicians, and I mean, I is from Kyoto, and I didn't have a chance to see. I think once I saw something like that the entire time, but I, you know, when I when I saw them in San Francisco at the I Beam, I think Kennel Club, yeah, you know, the Kennel Club, right? And it was um, 
it was a time when there, there were other bands like Carolina Rainbow in, in the area. There's a new book out actually about the underground in San Francisco that deals with a lot of this history. And the moments of connection were pretty strong. And it took us a while to realize, oh yeah, these guys are Japanese. They haven't had that much connection with the U.S. And I could speak Japanese, you know, so occasionally I would come up and start talking to these groups and, you know, who are just trying to deal with the U.S. for the first time. And, you know, with the Boredoms, it was the fact that they toured and they, and they blew people mm-hmm. away. And that, that was a really big deal. Their, their record was released on Shimmy Disc, which was a label run by Kramer in New York City. And they released a couple of other things that were sort of had been circulating in Japan for years and years. But the things just started to pop up in the sort of uh, early 90s to mid 90s was when it really started becoming a flood of stuff because of the change in the media distribution with with CDs and CD, eventually CDRs becoming possible to, to mail. But before that, it had been pretty underground. And to get it on vinyl, which was a real medium, not like a cassette, which we all thought of as being something that, you know, how can this be released? How can this be on vinyl? And then when you went to see them and you said, oh, these guys are really something else. So Boredom's Ruins were also released on that label. There were other bands that people heard of, but by the time you got to something that was really extreme, what we would consider like harsh noise or extreme noise like Meritzbau or Hidokaidan or Incapacitance or something like that, you had to be pretty deep in it by that time. Yeah, I would imagine so. You wrote a piece describing that show at the Kennel Club, and it was a fascinating description of what it was like. Can you talk about that? Was it unlike anything you'd ever seen before, this band playing this chaotic, kind of in-your-face music? No, it wasn't like anything I'd ever seen before, but it was like a lot of, it was like a lot of things I had seen before. And so I was pretty involved with groups like uh, Butthole Surfers. I had seen a lot of chaotic and crazy music by the time I could see the Boredoms. <laughs> so what the Boredoms were, were just excellent. They were just amazing, powerful, and explosive. music that they made was unique because of its aura, because of its authority and the and because of its energy. It, it wasn't like I saw this and said, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. But I said, this is incredible. This is amazing. This really mm-hmm. touches me. This really moves me. So I think that it was powerful for that reason. And I had been to Japan, right? And I had had kind of a tough experience. And I thought, well, maybe I'll never go back there. I, I had gone to Indonesia to do my research instead. And, and I was at that mm-hmm. time, like pretty involved with my own bands and not really interested in going back to Asia to do research. So it, it actually, it planted a little seed, like, well, if I go to Japan, at least I can see a lot more excellent music like this and, <laughs> and maybe have a lot more chances to meet people who I never knew were there. Okay, well, let's talk about the word noise. You wrote in the introduction to the book you co-edited with Matt Sakakini, keywords in sound that, and this is a quote, noise is a material aspect of sound. It is discussed as a generalized property of sound, as noisiness, as a distinct sonic object within music, speech, or environmental sounds, as a noise. 
or as a totalizing qualifier for emergent styles, e.g. that hip-hop stuff is all noise. But its specific qualities are hard to define, end quote. You also wrote in that intro that, quote, begins again, noise stands for subjectivities of difference that break from normative social context, end quote. So my assumption is that the label Japanese noise music involves more than just sound. So if we take Japanese out of it, tell me more about that word noise and what it reveals about that kind of music. Well, thank you for taking a deep dive into that complicated, you know, definition, you know, which is fascinating. um, Thank you. Well, the, the term noise is a really, really complicated and rich one. There's been a lot of ink spilled on it. My perspective on it is sort of broken up into different discourses. So the reason I wrote that article about noise was to show how, how we, what we mean different things when we say noise. There's the technological, we could start with the technological description, which is something that we don't want to be transmitted is noise. So if I'm talking to you right now over this connection, we don't want uh, anything but the intelligibility of my voice to come through. Maybe some of the sound quality of my voice helps with that, but it's we're going to compress the hell out of it to make sure that it doesn't get noise in the signal. So there's signal to noise. Then there is something like noise is something I don't like or it's unwanted. And that would be, you know, an assignation of value, oftentimes as a cultural value. That's why I use hip hop there, because it tends to be one of those things people say, I like everything except for country and hip hop. In other words, I like, <laughs> and that extends to the social noise, which is I like everything but poor white people and poor black people's music or something like that. So you get into this kind of problem of, you know, trying to disentangle these different forms of noise from one another. And then we have like the physical materiality of noise, which is, you know, noise is, according to Hermann Hemholtz and the acoustic kind of definition, it's stuff that doesn't repeat. And I found that metaphorically very interesting, right? Because that materiality has a kind of metaphorical purpose, which is to show that when something repeats itself over and over and over, it becomes like a cultural tradition. Yes. When a wave repeats itself over and over again, it becomes a tone. But when a sound is, it, it, when a wave is broken and, and, and doesn't repeat itself and, and is unpredictable and, and has all these differences in the, in the tone, it doesn't come out as a note or a, or a tone. It comes out as a, like a plate crashing. Which if you looked at it in a spectrogram, you'd see all these different uh, sounds. We call that mm-hmm. noise. And there's a material difference between that kind of sound and tones. And so there is actually a material connection between what we would call noise and what we would call noise music, the, what the, the, this so-called genre, which actually is using these sounds that are noise, you know, they're noisy sounds. And it's uh, worth saying they're noisy. So something like the Boredoms, what was interesting is their music was pretty noisy, but it, it still had structures in it. And the more repetitions, like repetitions of rhythm, repetitions of tone, you know, and, or style, that it has in it, the less kind of it is like so-called pure noise. And so I got more and more interested in these things where people would say, no, 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 I'm not noise. And so, you know, getting into those things about noise in the U.S. in the 90s, really, people started using it as a generic term coming from things like sonic youth, you know, where you would hear or industrial, you know, music that is often very rhythmic and has a, a lot of rhythmic repetition. But the melodic or harmonic stuff is taken away or has a punk rock sort of chanting style instead of singing. So there are all these ways in which there are musical and material reasons for calling something noise. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these other associations piled up on top of it. So it becomes this kind of like cluster of 
ideas and feelings and sounds that stays together in, you know, it doesn't really, it's not really easy to say, well, that's not what I'm talking about. Actually, I'm only talking about this form of noise. Yes. And so what, what I find annoying about, about that problem is that that allows people to sort of shift back and forth between these very different contexts as if they're the same thing, just by using the word noise, but they're not the same thing. And you, it's worth sort of looking at things in context. And a lot of the writing about noise doesn't do that as much as I'd like. So mm -hmm. the article was trying to say there are all these different forms and expectations that we put on this concept of this word. And if you break down the genealogy of the word, you can see that, that uh, what it's doing is, is sort of forcing together a lot of things mm -hmm. that you know, may or may not have associations of, of, this, of those values, that uh, social values or material sound values or technological values that we would associate right. with. Them. But they're all part of this thing. Like the fact that there's a lot of misunderstanding is a kind of noise between these cultural sites. Exactly. And in relation to the music style that we're talking about, I gather that this style, especially when you couple the music with the performance, is so much more than just the sound coming out. There's an attitude there's a certain behavior, there's a certain expectation that the audience has. How would you describe what that style of music is? So, you know, people are, of course, naturally going to ask the question, what does it sound like? What does this thing sound like? And there's an, there's, whenever you're talking about something, you can't just be like a post-structuralist about it and say, oh, it's all just discourse or it's all just people talking and thinking and there's no real thing there, which is what I, I kind of do. I kind of think that's true, but there's also, you know, examples that get mm -hmm. held up and used all the time. Usually the problem with examples is that it's the same example that's then everything else kind of floats away from it, you know, and you can do this with any kind of genre, like country music or, or anything. You kind of look at it and you say, well, you know, these conditions that we say mm -hmm. are the origins of the music aren't really, you know, consistent at all over history or from case to case. And the sound is different from case to case. But Christy, can I ask you, have you ever heard anything of, of this music? Yes, I was listening to Boredom's album, Soul Discharge, on YouTube because of the way you wrote about that record and that band and seeing them live and, you know, what we were talking about earlier. You said of that album, quote, dropping the needle on Soul Discharge released the most spectacularly dissonant racket I'd ever heard, toggling through a spectrum of styles and sounds. Sometimes Boredom sounded like a hardcore band. Sometimes a random Dada cut up a popular culture. It was desperately heavy, but also funny as hell, end quote. And I thought to myself, I got to check this out. And then when I did, I thought, yep, spot on. <laughs> And I also listened to a lot of Gary, Gary, Gay, Gay, Gay on YouTube before I interviewed Ben about his novel, Music is Over. Oh, oh and I listened to Mersbow too. So I have very limited knowledge of this kind of music, but I have had a taste of it. Great. Well, that's, that's a pretty good taste. And, you know, I guess what I would say is that those are, you know, really different examples and they sound really different from one another, don't you think? Yes, I completely agree. There was something almost childlike about boredoms, but... 
there was something really assaultive about the music of the Gara Gara Gay Gay Gay. Yeah. And, and of course, their stage performances were legendary. What would go on during those shows? Yeah. In the same way, the Boredoms, actually, Hanatarashi is probably most famous for, which is the Eyes band before Boredoms. They're the, probably the most famous for these assaultive performances. In the cover of my book, in the frontispiece of my book, there's a picture by Jean Sato, which is famously of Hanatarash performing, which was just I, and he's driving a bulldozer into a club and destroying the, the club. Is, and, and I asked him about this picture, you know, this legendary picture, and he said, why do you want to know? And I said, well, actually, I've heard so many stories about this, and, I, and you were there, you took the picture, you know, can you tell me about what happened? And, and I said that what I'm most interested in is how this legend of this powerful assaultive performance got circulated to people who hadn't been there because that's a really powerful part of this story is is who mm. really has ever seen Gero Geri Gegege or Hanatarash like a handful of people but these stories are still being repeated here 40 years later or whatever it is so he said that's really interesting and I don't want to spoil the mystery that you're talking about you know because it's so important so and I kind of thought shit I blew it you know <laughs> then he said you know let's keep it the way it is the, there's this really extreme performance style, which is one of the questions I had as I was researching this was these people do such extreme things and they're famous for it, like the Kijo Kaidan throwing buckets of rotten fish and Nato on the audience peeing on stage. You know, they, they got banned from every venue in, in, and they couldn't play anymore. So they had to start, you know, just going into the world of recording. And if they wanted people to hear it, they had to send them outside of the country. It's almost like they reached over the local scene that they had sort of you know, burnt their bridges and they started reaching up, out overseas. So it's a very interesting way in which th there's a connection between this assaultive, as you put it, like uh, moments, which are, you know, actually assaultive in some ways. And mm -hmm. uh, punk rock in Japan was not lighthearted. It was really extreme. And noise came out of that punk scene, uh, you know, to, to a large degree. That doesn't mean they were all fans of punk rock. They didn't care necessarily for that, but they were into like psych rock, like Hawkwind and, they were into a lot of really interesting electronic music, and but they didn't have synthesizers and they didn't have musical skills. And so they ended up doing this other thing. Then when people heard it, somehow these stories got connected with the sounds, which if you listen to the sounds, I mean, you can kind of tell something's going on, but you couldn't really know. I mean, you can listen to bands that are supposed to be really punk rock, and then you go see them and everyone's sitting in chairs and clapping. And so what? <laughs> You know, so th these Japanese guys were thinking to themselves, you know, we really, really want to take this another step. And actually, Jojo has a great story, Jojo Hiroshige of uh, Hijo Kairan, that I relate in the book, where he says, you know, we heard about Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner. It wasn't easy to get these records, right? For so long, we heard about Jimi Hendrix and what a great, insane, destructive, destroying the guitar, burning the guitar. And then we heard the music and we said, well, most of this is just normal music. You know, there's this, except for the ends, like there's this one part where he does this crazy thing. We want to make all the music like that. So there's this way in which um, the imaginary of, of what's going on in another scene can really feed uh, creativity and make these new things happen. 
So the boredom's really made a mark in this country. I was surprised to find out that they opened for Nirvana at Lollapalooza in 1994. I, a member of Boredom's, he worked with somebody from Sonic Youth, didn't he? He, he worked with Sonic Youth and Ween. Oh, yeah. Well, definitely I worked with Ween closely. It was Yoshimi, I think, who did the band Free Kitten with Mark from Pavement and Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. The Flaming Lips wrote a song where their most famous album is, is about you. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I've heard that. I didn't I didn't realize until I started doing research for this. That's where that comes from. Yeah. And so, yeah, they were, they, they, what they were, were a cult band and a musicians. They were musicians, musicians. And so that meant a lot in the 90s because the industry did not know what to do. They were trying to figure out this underground independent music scene and trying to, and they, so they were giving a lot of freedoms that had not been given to bands before, especially Geffen records, reprise records that Warner brothers, which released the boredoms. And frankly, it wasn't so much the shocking aspects of the music because at that time I'd heard a lot of shocking music, but the fact that they were on Warner brothers was what really shocked me, uh, people. And, and they were quite popular in Japan. I've seen like thousands and thousands of people at boredom shows. And wow. um, Kurt Cobain was a unique person, right? And he he loved yes. a lot of underground music. You know, Daniel Johnston was on his T-shirt on the cover of Rolling Stone. You know, these are obscure people. And he would really elevate these underground musicians. He loved a lot of extreme sounds, and he really championed these groups. And so it was his insistence that brought, you know, and, and Sonic Youth, you know, turning them on. So Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon and Kurt Cobain and Ween and all these other people who are getting contracts, they were saying, well, we want to, we want these people to open for us. Nice. We want uh, Pussy Galore came to Japan. And so all the Japanese came as well to see Sonic Youth, to see Pussy Galore. And they would see a, a Japanese band up there doing this. And they said, whoa, what's ironic about it is these American fans who were musicians, famous musicians, opened the doors for Japanese fans to learn about their own country's underground. Would you say the 90s is the heyday for this kind of music? No, uh, I would say the 90s is the beginning of when people got conscious of it. I would say that okay. now is probably the heyday of people doing it. The last 10 years, the last 20 years has been just explosive because there are so many more opportunities for people to do things. And if we don't, if we, if we could say the commercial heyday of it, uh, might've been the nineties in the sense that you had bands, you know, getting exposure or getting the nineties was also a time when Japan had more money, you know, and the U S was more open to, let's say it wasn't as difficult to get a, a visa to come here. Yeah. And, you know, Japanese people had more money to bring bands from the West and take a chance on that. And then after you lose a lot of money and you're in an economic depression, you know, you might not be as interested. And there's been a kind of turning away from this hyper-focus. America and Japan were really hyper-focused on each other in the 90s. So in that way, it's kind of a heyday of the, you know, mutual admiration club. But in terms of the music, it's happening all over the world. I mean, I go to Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines all the time to do work with noise musicians there. You know, like this stuff is exploding. Wow. Those friends of mine in the Japanese noise scene have collaborated with my Indonesian friends who are, you know, 30 years younger. This is interesting. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for giving me all this information. It really adds another level to Ben's novel. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to, to reading it. Yeah, it's a good yeah, read. Yeah, I will say if anybody listening is interested in my book, it's free. 
it's on a Creative Commons license. On on the website, it's japannoise.com. So if you everything I've ever written or done is up there for free. And that's because I get paid by the University of California. I don't make much money off of my books and things like that. So feel free to just go and grab it. Fabulous. All right. Is there, do you have a website? Do you have, are you on social media? How can people find out more about you besides just that? Yeah, it's japanoise.com. I should say Japan Noise shares an N, right? So it's Japan Noise, Japanoise, depending on how you say it, with a shared okay. N, right? So Japan and Noise share an N.com. And that page has all sorts of stuff on it. Thank you so much, David. This has really been interesting and a lot of fun. Thank you, Christy. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to Ben Arzate, whose rock novel Music is Over was the inspiration for this episode. Stay tuned for more great combos with authors and music gurus. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.